Hello and welcome back to the Herbert Smith Freehills Tax Bite podcast. My name is Toby Eggleston, a partner in the Melbourne office, and we are here on Friday afternoon, 17th of March, with an emergency podcast. Yesterday afternoon, the Treasury dropped on the exposure draft for changes to Australia's thin capitalisation regime. This was flagged in last year's budget where the government wanted to move from a debt to asset gearing ratio to a percentage of EBITDA to cap the debt deductions that an Australian entity might be able to claim. However, there were additional provisions that have been snuck into the draft, which have caught a number of us by surprise. And here to break them down for me is Professor Graham Cooper. Hello, Graham. Hello, Toby. And also joining us is Ryan Leslie, my fellow partner in the Melbourne office. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Toby. Hi, Graham. Okay. So the big news is the amendments to Section 25-90 of the Income Tax Assessment Act 1997. That essentially allowed companies to claim a deduction for interest incurred in deriving non-assessable, non-exempt income for example, from dividends where they hold more than 10% in a foreign company. But the proposal is that rule be changed. Graham, do you want to run us through the background and history to how this provision came into the Act and then perhaps some of the concerns that have been raised along the way? Sure thing, Toby. The treatment of interest on money that you borrow in Australia to buy or fund your foreign subsidiaries has always been a function of two moving bits. So the first bit of the puzzle has always been, how does Australian tax law treat the dividend that you collect from your foreign subsidiary? And our treatment of dividends from foreign subsidiaries has moved over the years. I'll only go back 30 years, just to keep it simple. But prior to 1990, we would say that dividends from foreign subsidiaries were included in your assessable income. But if you held more than 10% and you were an Australian company, then we would give you a credit, foreign tax credit, for the withholding tax, if any, on the way out of the foreign country and the foreign underlying tax. As I said, that was the rule as at the end of 1990. And then we changed and we will just make those dividends effectively exempt income in Australia. And so that was the move from assessable but with a credit to non-assessable, non-exempt. 20 years ago, we decided we were going to play with the other part of that puzzle, which is what are the rules about the deductibility of interest? Now, our general rule is if the income that you're earning with the funds that you've borrowed is not going to be taxable, then no interest deduction for you. If the interest is taxable, you get your full interest deduction. So prior to 1990, when dividends from foreign subsidiaries were taxable with a credit, we would give you an interest deduction. But between 1990 and 2001, we switched off your interest deduction because the dividends that you got in that period were no longer assessable. They were made non-assessable and non-exempt income. And so your interest deduction got switched off. Now, in 2001, so this is when Ken Henry was in charge of Treasury, there were a large number of business tax changes occurring, one of which was the reconceptualization of the thin cap rules. And at the time the thin cap rules were revised, so this is 2001, 
Treasury came to the view that they could afford to let you take a deduction for interest expense incurred in earning non-assessable, non-exempt income in the form of dividends from your foreign subsidiaries, despite the general rule. So we created this special exemption in 2590 that said, if the non-assessable, non-exempt income you're earning is a dividend from a foreign subsidiary and you've got 10% of it, then even though that won't be taxed, we will give you an allowable deduction for your interest. Now, there were two kinds of policies driving those changes. First is the move from assessable dividends to exempt dividends. And that was driven simply by Treasury saying, this game is a waste of everybody's time and effort because everybody is in surplus foreign tax credit territory. By the time you add together dividend withholding tax and the underlying foreign corporate tax, everybody has got more tax credits than they've got Australian tax. So why don't we just make things easy for everybody and say the dividends will be exempt because that's effectively what's happening. Very sensible policy. Treasury said, let's do that. The move to the treatment of interest was driven by a view that the thin cap rules were more than adequate to determine what was an appropriate level of debt to be allocated against the income of the Australian entity. Now, when we had rewritten the thin cap rules in 2001, we'd added in outbound thin cap. Until then, our thin capitalization rules had only been concerned with foreigners stripping profits out of Australia in the form of interest subject to 10% withholding tax. We then decided in 2001 that we were going to be concerned also about debt parking. So having the Australian operations funded principally with debt, while the offshore operations were funded principally with equity. So that country was getting full corporate tax rate and Australia was not. So this level of domestic versus foreign debt was meant to be controlled at the level of the total amount of debt the way the thin cap rules worked. Because the amount of debt was capped by thin cap, it was said, whatever survives, we can allow that to remain deductible. And so we just changed the rules, which is a little bit ironic if you were Mr. Packer, because Mr. Packer, based on a high court decision in 2001, was engaged in tax avoidance. And the next year, if Mr. Packer had entirely the same structure, he would have been giving effect to the new policy be that as it may, from 2001 onwards, we had this world where dividends were exempt and your interest incurred to earn the dividends was taxable. Now, it's my suspicion, Toby, based on absolutely no evidence at all, that there was a deep factional war occurring inside Treasury about whether this was good tax policy. Because in May 2013, so 13 years after that combination of policy settings, The then Labor government announced that they were going to introduce amendments that would remove the Section 2590 deduction. The coalition government gets elected before the ALP gets around to legislating that change. And so Mr. Hockey and Mr. Sinodinus come to power. They say, we are not going to do that. So we'll let the existing settings stay in place. But we will do this other thing, some other measure to address profit shifting by multinationals through putting excessive debt into Australia. That was so important that the coalition never got around to it. While the coalition was in power, everybody thought this ALP policy 
that was announced in 2013 is now effectively dead. And there were pretty good signs that it was dead because the OECD had come out with its BEPS action report in 2015, and we had studiously ignored the bit of the report on action four, which said you probably shouldn't be giving an interest deduction for money that is used to produce exempt income. The Senate committee that inquired into corporate tax avoidance looked at this issue and decided that they were going to deal with this issue by playing with the thin capitalization tests rather than through repealing 2590. And in the run-up to the 2022 election, the ALP had a large suite of policies that were directed multinationals, uh, including this change to the thin capitalization rules, but they mentioned nothing about the repeal of 2590. So when yesterday's little bombshell dropped, I think it caught a lot of people by surprise because we had all thought this policy was dead, buried and cremated. Perhaps the Treasurer being, having been an assistant to Wayne Swan is just trying to implement Wayne's manifesto. And Graham, just going to the pre-2000 period, was there a situation where companies effectively dealt with this by bifurcating loans so they'd be able to trace the funds that purely went into their Australian operations and have a separate facility and separate drawdowns that were clearly traced to their foreign investment? In the world between 1990 and 2001, there were lots of practices that were in place to try to ensure that people kept their interest deductions because there are all kinds of problems with tracing and apportionment if you don't manage your borrowings carefully. We will return to that world, Toby, where people are identifying the purposes of borrowing, where the money goes, quarantining and isolating their various borrowings for various purposes. And for people who don't, there is a whole world of pain in store for them. So companies that just run mixed accounts with multiple borrowings and drawdowns for various purposes will have all kinds of problems uh, trying to retrospectively identify what money was used for what purpose. But you're right, Toby, in that period between 90 and 2001, there was a lot of care and attention given to the way in which borrowings occurred. And we will go back to that world. And of course, one of the big issues with there being no transitional relief from these provisions is that a lot of the rigour around those processes and even thought about those issues has disappeared over the last 22 years. I think particularly for entities with offshore investments, it's going to be a rough couple of years of transition, trying to unscramble the egg to work out which debt is covered by this change and which isn't, or whether some type of broader apportionment approach is needed, noting that there's nothing in the draft legislation that prescribes particular methods. Yes, this announcement is surprising in itself. And then to double the surprise, there's no suggestion of any grandfathering of existing debt structures that they might stay out of rules, interest on those debt structures might stay out of these rules, or that people might be given a grace period to unwind their structures before the new rules start. The transition rule is very simple. It applies to interest incurred in income years starting on or after 1 July 2023. So people have got four months to get their house in order. And maybe you can do that for new borrowings from today. Uh, 
I, I'm not sure that people are going to be able to unscramble their past borrowings, as you say, to try to trace what money went where and when. And I think it's also interesting from a policy perspective. We'll come to the, the thing capitalization changes shortly, but obviously moving to an EBITDA test to replace our current safe harbour gearing level for ThinkCap. The test is based on tax EBITDA, which is based on the starting point is taxable income. So any income derived from these offshore investments is not going to be taken into account in the calculation of ThinkCap capacity under the new fixed ratio test. To me, there is a bit of a question as to whether we actually needed to go ahead and try and make the change to 2590 as well, or whether the issue is largely dealt with separately. Yes, clearly the, the temptation for the drafters is to say that's not earnings, so that doesn't get into EBITDA, and that depreciation number, we're going to have to control that one as well. So there'll be all kinds of pressure put on the identification of the elements that go into tax EBITDA. And I think the other question that does arise is, as you noted, Graham in 2001, they brought in outbound investors into the FinCap regime. But the FinCap measures that have been released, they've got a new categorization of investor, but it is meant to wrap up both inbound and outbound investors. It's unclear why, if 2590 is being turned off, why there is a need to include outbound investors within the scope of FinCap. Yes, Toby. The explanation for the bombshell in the explanatory memorandum is extremely bland. It just says the rules go against the policy underlying the new rules as it gives a double benefit, the benefit of the income being main income and the benefit of a deduction for the interest expense. It's really not much of an explanation, given that for the last 20 years, this was exactly our policy settings. And nobody seemed to think that we were living in a fool's paradise for the last 20 years. Another part of the explanation says, oh, because we've gone from the old formulation of thin cap to this new EBITDA calculation, that requires the change. And I just scratch my head at that point and say, why? We're, all we're doing is trying to come up with a number. We're going to come up with a number this way rather than that way. The two numbers may well be different, but there's nothing inherent in the way we're counting up to four that says this is no longer appropriate. We have to turn off 2590. And I don't know why the new FinCap rule isn't effective, given that 20 years ago, Treasury thought the old FinCap rule was perfectly effective to solve dumping excessive levels of debt against the Australian operations. But that might have required a little bit more ink to be spilt than the person who wrote the EM was prepared to devote. I think it's fair to say there's a number of matters in the EM which are dealt with in a fairly perfunctory manner. But for that, I'll hand over to Ryan. We might need to come back and do a more fulsome breakdown of the ThinkCap provisions. We're still working through the nuances and complexities. But Ryan, do you want to give us an overview of your thoughts and first impressions? I think we can touch first on the broad brush changes and then perhaps some issues we've noticed so far. The overarching comment is the devil will be in the detail and there's quite a lot of it. The broad brush of the changes so far as the ThinkCap provisions are concerned are largely consistent with the announcement. So for entities other than 
ADIs, the existing ThinkOut tests, which are based on either an arm's length test or a permitted gearing level, will be amended based on EBITDA tests, EBITDA ratios. So there will be not quite a safe harbour, but almost a safe harbour that debt deductions can be permitted up to 30% of tax EBITDA. Tax EBITDA is defined in fairly short form fashion currently and suspect there might be some more clarifications to that as the consultation process continues but essentially starts with taxable income adds back net interest and adds back depreciation which is what's largely expected there's also a group ratio test which is effectively similar to the current worldwide gearing test albeit again moving to a test that's based on comparative EBITDA deductions to EBITDA ratios rather than the gearing ratios Again, there's a few complexities that I think that the group ratio test will throw up in terms of how groups are defined and what those measurements are and when that test is available. But for purely Australian domestic groups, that might be a test that's worth looking at, given that the 30% EBITDA test is likely to be, I think, more restrictive than the current 60% gearing test for most taxpayers. And the third test is essentially a replacement of the current arm's length debt test which applies in respect of all debt of an entity whether borrowed from third parties or related part with an external third party gearing test which is a form essentially of arm's length debt test but one which applies only to debt that's borrowed from external third parties and not debt that's borrowed from related parties so quite clearly especially for inbound structures a lot of existing investor debt deductions are going to be denied and we're probably looking at restructure scenarios. There are a few things in the external third-party debt definition that have stuck out to us as being potentially problematic. For example, there's a test which allows essentially the use of FinCo structures and on lending within a group that's subject to a range of conditions including that the on loan be on effectively identical terms save for the amount of debt, which is obviously not the case currently, given that generally loans within a group are on substantially simpler terms than the quite complicated financial arrangements with third-party banks. And it also seems to be, to similar to the point that Graham was making earlier around 2590, there seems to be a limitation that the external third-party gearing test only applies to the extent that the debt is applied for effectively generating Australian accessible income. And so it's not clear whether, in fact, having borrowings which are partly used to fund investments in offshore subsidiaries might prevent Australian groups from accessing the external third-party gearing test. There's quite a lot of detail there still to work through, but the early signs, I think, are there are a number of issues that are going to be pretty ripe for submissions in consultation, and it's going to be quite clearly a very substantial change to outcomes for a lot of groups. Yes, I probably should mention there is, a, this is an exposure draft. There will be a brief period of consultation. The first sitting date of Parliament, once those consultations have been conducted, will be in May in the budget sittings, which are usually, again, fairly short. So whether these rules are actually enacted by 1 July will be a matter of interest. Anything else that caught your eye there, Ryan? There are a few different changes to rules that interact with the ThinkCap provisions, including changes to how some of the complicated associate entity tests apply for superannuation funds, which I think could lead to some different and perhaps more beneficial outcomes for a number of investment structures. The other thing that's probably worth mentioning or reminding people of is the 30% EBITDA test comes with carry forward provisions. So where 
debt deductions are denied because the debt deductions exceed 30% of EBITDA, there's an ability to carry those deductions forward for 15 years. For companies, they'll need to satisfy a modified version of the continuity of ownership test to carry them forward, but there are no restrictions for trusts, which is an interesting distinction. And also there are some other restrictions around in order to continue carrying those deductions forward, you must continue to apply the 30% of EBITDA test instead of the alternative ThinkCap tests for the entire period until the deductions are applied. And essentially, there are a series of requirements in the new rules that basically require taxpayers to make elections in approved forms to choose their ThinkCap methodologies and make certain choices between alternative options that are available that are irrevocable. So contrary to the current position where a taxpayer could file in reliance on, for example, the safe harbour debt position or could file based on the arm's length position. And in the event the ATO were to review or form a different view, could fall back to a position in reliance on the ThinkCap safe harbour. That seems not to be the case anymore. So compliance around ThinkCap and proactive compliance, I think, is going to become a bigger issue. The other point just on that 15-year carry forward test, one of the things I thought was interesting was, as you noted, it relies on ensuring you meet the continuity of ownership test. For companies, there is obviously a fallback for the general ability to carry forward losses that if you fail the COT, you can rely on the business continuity test. That has not been replicated in these rules. I have heard rumours over the years that Treasury consider the business continuity test should be repealed, and maybe this is a first step. I'm uh, not sure if you've got any thoughts on that, Graham. I don't think there's any doubt that Treasury regards the business continuity test as an abomination. There is a Treasury paper which says, and I'm quoting loosely, that it was never meant to operate. Uh, It was always so unlikely that you would ever be able to satisfy the business continuity test that it would almost never apply. And so this is, to my knowledge, about the third attempt to qualify it. Brian mentioned consequential amendments, Toby, and I don't know if you wanted to talk about the complicated dance between thin capitalisation and transfer pricing, which is one of the things we'll be nutting out in the next instalment. But it's always been a matter of some difficulty. Thin deals with you having too much debt and transfer pricing deals with you having debt that's too expensive. And so what happens if you've got too much debt and it's too expensive? You know, who who goes first? And we've had an enormous amount of difficulty trying to get that articulation between transfer pricing and thin cap nailed down now in legislation. Uh, But this bill is going to play with that. And so we're going to have to revisit who's the lead partner in that little dance. Yes, it's tucked away in the consequential amendments, not referred to in the summary of changes. It's what four paragraphs, six sentences, one of which seems to have been cut off halfway, but basically saying the thing cap carve out from transfer pricing has been removed on the basis that it shouldn't apply on an earnings-based test. Like you, Graham, I'm a little mystified as to why changing the calculation of allowable interest from a gearing ratio to an earnings base necessarily requires this change, but that is being foisted upon us. So it does raise the question of clearly this isn't a safe harbor in the traditional sense. 
it raises the question as to if we're not really going to have a safe harbour and you still have to do a transfer pricing analysis as to what is the correct quantum of the debt, why should we be using these sort of earnings ratios anyway? But I guess it's a case of for the government, heads I win, tails you lose. But Graham, any thoughts on that and from a treaty perspective? Oh, Toby, we're getting into very deep water here now. So as Ryan said, one of the changes in the thin cap rule is the abolition of the arm's length debt test and the replacement with the external debt test, which is not a good substitute, but it's the one that kind of replaces the arm's length debt test. Now, the arm's length debt test was inserted explicitly into Australian domestic law in 2001 because there are passages in the commentary to the OECD model which say you can't have formulas in your domestic law that produce outcomes that are not consistent with arm's length pricing. And one of the examples commentary uses is thin capitalisation ratios, three to one debt levels or three to two debt levels. Um, uh, It was flagged as an area that might be problematic because that might not be consistent with the amount of debt that could be borrowed on arm's length terms or the price at which that amount of debt would be would be priced. And so when the 2001 amendments were enacted, the explanatory memorandum says we're doing this because we understand that our treaties require us to have an arm's length debt test. And by the way, the explanatory memorandum says this has always been the law, that you could rely on the treaty to defeat the previous version of the rules that had existed from 1987 till 2000. A proposition which took a lot of people by surprise, that there was this hidden exception to our thin cap rules lurking in the treaties that we uh, had not really been paying attention to. Anyway, if that was the view in 2001, There's a query, I think, about whether that view now resurfaces in 2023. If it was unlawful to have a fixed ratio in 2001 and we had to have an arm's length debt test, is it still required that we have an arm's length debt test in 2023, given that we've just repealed it? So again, food for thought there, Toby. Yes, indeed. On what was meant to be a brief discussion. So we might wrap it up there and come back probably next week. But Ryan, any uh, closing thoughts? No, other than I think there are a lot of people putting pen to paper on submissions already. There's going to be substantial impact for infrastructure, real assets, startups, among others, including the potential, I think, to impact the returns that are likely to be expected for very long life projects where people have already invested, including following changes that have been made to sovereign immunity, stapled structures and other things in the recent years. It seems very likely that the changes or something very similar to them will be implemented likely with effect very soon and it's going to have probably substantial impact. Um, It's certainly something that people are going to be working through in a lot of detail sooner rather than later. Yep. Graham, anything before we sign off? I'm just going to say we don't have a lot of time to reply to this. So submissions are due by 13 April. It's a significant change, requires a lot of thought. 13 April is not a long time for people to get their positions clear and and into Treasury. It does seem that, as Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. For you, Graham, I don't think you'll be retiring 
anytime soon. We'll be relying on your expertise as to what worked, what didn't work in that era. But for now, I think we'll wrap it up. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, Toby. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Toby. And listeners, we'll be back probably next week, but also keep an eye out on our website on the HSF Tax Notes, where we'll be putting out publications on these measures. But if you have any queries in the meantime, please feel free to reach out. But otherwise, thank you for listening.